2: Into our house, enter thou not. Through our fence, break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared. To death. To, death, to, death, to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan.
3: Hello, neighbor.
2: Hello, neighbor. I'm in the tree. <laughs> Hello, Lindsay Lou.
3: Hello, Danny Doo. Uh,
2: happy holidays to everyone listening. I uh, hope you're able to get some time off this week, uh, meet up with family or friends, watch one of your favorite movies. I hope it's not extra stressful. I find myself always getting my, I'm so busy all the time. Yeah. And then when the holidays add that little bit of extra chaos. Mm hmm. Part of me, like, loves it so much, but I will say part of me is always like, let's get this over with.
3: But, like, w- okay, but what are you doing that's adding?
2: Like, family coming into town and stuff, like, just because I have to work so many days normally. Yeah. I'm already like, well, shoot, now I can't work on the weekend. Now I'm going to be high in the next week. Like yeah. That's where, so I hope, people listening, I hope you don't get too stressed. Yeah. And I'm also going to have fun, but I just hope everybody listening, um, you know, gets to enjoy part of the holidays. Yeah. A couple days off.
3: You'll enjoy it. It'll be okay. I'll
2: enjoy it. I'll enjoy it once. Uh, I always enjoy it we get it, to Christmas Eve. Yeah, I always enjoy it once I get exactly once once we get to Christmas Eve. Or but we're gonna
3: have a night alone. That's what <laughs> that's what that yeah. knowing nod is about.
2: <laughs> and yeah, and Christmas Day. It's it's the getting there that sometimes is a I little know. chaotic.
3: Well, just so you know, that's how every person in a household. I would say every wife or girlfriend, because I think it yeah. generally falls on the female proponent of the household. Yeah. But that's how we feel about like, oh, my God, do I have enough gifts? Did I get everybody? Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, I. that's why I shopped for 12 hours straight last Saturday. <sighs> yeah. And I'm still like, oh, shit, I forgot these people.
2: Mm-hmm. That's, what a lot of, that's why a lot of people just give up. Yeah. And they're like, we're just getting gift cards.
3: I mean, I did buy your family ham. Yeah, I gave up. I was like, "Well, you're getting honey baked ham."
2: Yeah, let's make it easier.
3: Fucking delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, if honey baked ham wants to sponsor this show, I will talk (laughs) about like the soup that you can make, (laughs) the sandwiches you can make. You can bake it into like a like a pot pie kind of situation. Mm -hmm. I've got all the answers. Nice.
2: Uh, At the very least for everyone Thanks for celebrating the holidays uh, in a little way with us here today Yeah A little bit of a holiday themed episode Uh, Before we get into it, just real quick, just one thing Uh, Recording this in advance of the 2021 Bad Magic Virtual Gathering That was on the 19th Hoping we had fun, hope it worked out well And we got to enjoy a fun movie uh, Do some chatting, etc And that's it That's it. And now story time
3: Can I talk about this for one second? I can't see because of the tree I know, look at these holiday peeps
2: Oh, Little Snowman.
3: Little Snowman for the peepers. I, but I I know I can't eat it on mic because it, uh, it's a chewy, <sighs> chewy, gooey marshmallow situation. Oh, so man. I think everyone would hate us. So I'll save them I think for so. later. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about stories, Dan.
2: How many stories do you have today?
3: Well, I have two.
2: Are they holiday themed in any way?
3: No, they are not.
2: Oh, awkward.
3: Okie-wokie, as the kids say. That's, <laughs> that's a thing kids are saying now okie waki.
2: I thought that was just something our family said. Uh, that's something that p- other people are saying?
3: Oh. Well, Monroe started it, and I, mm. I thought that it came from school. <laughs> so, maybe <Hopefully>. I'm wrong. <laughs> or, okie-wokie. <okay>, <laughs> uh, so, I have two stories, uh, not holiday-themed, and, I mean, to be transparent, I actually, yeah. like, I was like, I write the date on the episodes, I was like, 12-21, cool. Next week, I'll talk about, like, the end of the year. It didn't even occur to me that, for some people, they will be celebrating Christmas. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen, we missed Hanukkah. Right. And... I only keep track of Hanukkah and Christmas because I don't know all the other ones or their significance. So I'm useless. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So my first, my my stories are a little bit different this week. Uh, Really, like, you know, sometimes we really dive into that, like, thing, that theory that it doesn't always have to be scary. Like, it doesn't have to be, like, the most terrifying moment for it to be real, like some validity moments. So I've got some really good validity this week, I feel like. Uh, One of the stories takes us back to
2: verification.
3: Yes. Uh, one of the stories takes us back to Vaselia, Iowa, to the Axe Murder Houses, to the Axe Murder House.
2: Velisca. Is that what you just decided?
3: Velisca. What did I, I, I even, say? I
2: you said Vaselia. I don't even know where that where that is. I don't even know you, what what is that? It starts with a V. <laughs> Both of those words you said starts with a V and that's about all they have in common. <laughs> did I
3: say Vassalia? Yeah. What is that?
2: Villanova. Villanova, <laughs> Virginia.
3: <laughs> well,
2: Virginia City, <laughs> Iowa.
3: What the heck? <laughs>
2: don't but, know.
3: Well, Velisca. Velisca. Or Visalia, wherever you're from. Uh, So we're going back there. That's pretty funny. I like that I said it with such confidence, Mm -hmm. too. That's a very Lulu thing. The
2: Vacaville Axe (laughs) Murders.
3: And then in my second story, uh, we have a a deceased mother who potentially is haunting her daughter. Oh, interesting. Mm, Really interesting. And interesting how it came to be. Okay, i got to take these glasses off. They're awful.
2: (laughs) I, uh, I, I have two. My first is A Tale of Demonic Possession and an Exorcism from Germany in the 1840s. does wrap up shortly after Christmas in 1842, so I think kind of holiday-ish. It counts, asterisk. Okay. Uh, even if it doesn't, my second story continues our holiday tradition here on Scared to Death of telling a Victorian-era British uh, ghost story, since that's where our tradition of telling spooky ghost stories to scare one another comes from, at least here in Western society. Going to go back to 1895 today to tell the story of Lost Hearts, written by English author M.R. James, uh, who used to tell his friends stories like this one, you know, I'll be sharing today, year after year on Christmas Eve. That's great. Part of his Christmas Eve tradition, which was a popular uh, Christmas Eve or just holiday, sometime around the holiday tradition in England for many, many years. Telling ghost stories.
3: I forgot that Kyler didn't do his, like, weird folk, uh, is it Icelandic folklore? He would be mm. like, today is like... Oh, yeah. They would be so weird, like the yogurt stealer or something. The sausage swiper. Sausage swiper. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's one. Yeah, <laughs> I just flashed on that, thinking of traditions. Yeah. Also, I can't keep this hat on. I don't know how you're doing it, but it was itching the was <laughs> out of my neck.
2: Uh, two 19th century European horror tales today. Are you, are you ready for the first one?
3: I sure am, Dan.
2: Decent amount of setup here.
3: Okay. I'm going to get cozy. I, I have on Christmas socks, and I'm wearing green, so I'm as Christmas as you get. All right. You know what I mean?
2: Lutheran minister... Johann Christoph Blumhardt, born July 16th, 1805 in Stuttgart, Germany. He would live in Germany until his death at the age of 74, February 25th, 1880. Blumhardt became a famous faith healer in his day, and his fame began with the book he wrote, Blumhardt's Battle, published in 1850. A book that journaled his 1842 exorcism of Gottliebenditis, a young woman from the small German village of Möttingen. And Gottlieben experienced, uh, if we are to believe, to account, an incredibly intense and prolonged chronic possession. Or, sorry, chronic demonic. The mic got in my way, and my brain just converted that to chronic. That'd be, okay, that'd be, that'd be terrible to have a chronic possession.
3: Yeah, I mean, one and the same, yeah.
2: The primary possessor was determined to be the spirit of a local widow who had murdered two children and then buried them in a field before dying herself. Jeez. Mm-hmm. According to bloomheart Gottlieben was also possessed by a horde of demons that caused physical ailments and strange behavior. The possession ended after Gottlieb and her siblings were attacked by spirits one final time in December 1842 after two years of torment. Blumhardt, leading the exorcism, prayed intensely with the family as he'd done month after month at this point. And then a demon finally cried out, Jesus is the victor. And all paranormal activity in the Dietas household ceased forever. When Blumhardt was called a hero by the people in his village, he responded with, that I don't know, but this I do know. Jesus is the victor. And the term "Jesus is Victor" has been used as a rally cry by various Christians ever since.
3: Hmm, I've never uh, heard it.
2: Yeah, never heard that uh, term. Nope, I have somewhere. Uh, this exorcism led to a revival in Bloomhart's parish. Following the exorcism, he claimed to use the power of prayer to do everything from healing the sick to converting non-believers. This particular exorcism became known all over the world in the 19th century, and still one of Europe's most well-documented historic possessions. Bloomhart wrote the uh, sorry Bloomhart wrote in the preface of his book about it. Until now, I've never spoken with such boldness and candor to anybody about my experiences. Even my best friends look at me askance and act as though they feel threatened by even hearing about these things. Until now, most of it has remained a secret that I could have taken with me to the grave. It would have been easy to give an account that avoided offending any reader, but I could not do that. At almost every paragraph, I asked myself if it was not rash to tell everything just as it was... But time and time again, an inner voice would say, out with it. So I dared it, in the name of Jesus, the victor. This is an honest report of what I can still remember, and I am firmly convinced that the Lord will hold His hand over me in this. My only intention is to tell everything to the honor of Him who is the victor over all dark powers. I cannot take it amiss if somebody is mistrustful of these accounts, or for these things are beyond our understanding. They are, however, based on observations and experiences over nearly two years, Ones which can in every case be corroborated by eyewitnesses. In speaking out unreservedly for the first time, I ask that the information given here be regarded as private, as when close friends share a secret. I also ask the reader to be good as to read the whole report several times before forming a judgment. Meanwhile, I put my trust in him who has human hearts in his power. Whatever the verdict of those who read this account, I rest assured in the knowledge that I have spoken the unvarnished truth and in the rock like certainty that Jesus is the victor. Time now for the tale of the possession of Gottlieben Dietz. On July 31st, 1838, Blumhardt, a 33-year-old recent university graduate at this point, becomes a pastor of a church set amidst some of the poorest villages in the northern black forest region of Germany. And less than two years later, in the spring of 1840, he's advised by his parishioners to investigate some strange happenings at the Dietus' home. The Didis family consisted of five orphaned siblings who all lived together. Andreas, Gottlieben, Anna Maria, Katharina, and Hans Hansjörg. They lived in poverty in what was described as a tumble-down house. Gottlieben was 24 when Blumhardt met her at her home for the first time. She was described as a God-fearing woman with the gift of being especially alert in an inner way and receptive to deeper insights. And she'd been suffering from physical and mental health issues for most of her life. Doctors had diagnosed her with a Nervous disorder. She experienced seizures often, and some villagers accused Gottlieben of having engaged in magic or witchcraft, which they believed caused her troubles. And when, Gottlie- and when Gottlieben first laid eyes on Bloomheart, she felt a strange urge to scratch his eyes out. She hated him. The Didis orphans had lived at the edge of the village prior to Bloomheart's visit, but in the spring of 1840, they moved closer to town, into the first floor of a larger house, and that's when strange things started happening. Every once in a while, these pages get stuck together, and I cannot turn them with one hand.
3: Uh, That was really funny.
2: (laughs) I tried so hard. Uh, Oh, my God, and I totally lost my place when I was trying to turn that page. They moved into the
3: house, the first floor of a large house.
2: Yeah. Um, Okay, in the first floor of a larger house, and that's when strange things started happening. When the siblings said their first grace in their new home, the words, Come, Lord Jesus, and be our guest, caused Gottlieben to fall unconscious at the table. Things then started happening all around the house, banging, shuffling noises, small, shadowy figures seen moving about, and even glowing orbs. So many signs of a demonic infestation and or ghostly poltergeist activity that have become paranormal tropes today, but were much less unknown at the time. I'm sorry, much less known at the time. Uh, Gottlieb felt strange urges and was often witnessed by family and also neighbors contorting her body into uncomfortable and sometimes seemingly impossible positions. When Bloomhart first approached the house, Gottliebin flew into a rage and sent him away. He was hesitant to return, but neighbors begged him to do so. They were scared. The noises coming from the house were terrifying and kept them up at night. The Dita siblings swore they weren't the ones making these noises. Bloomhart, not often or not trained in performing exorcisms, did what he could for the next two years. He observed, advised, and prayed. Gottlieben's siblings told him that their sister was dealing with much more than unexplained noises. They told Blumhart that Gottlieben spoke about seeing a woman standing at the end of her bed. The woman held a dead baby in her arms and repeated over and over, I just want to find rest. Bloomhart instructed the family to never communicate with his spirit. He also asked one of Gottlieben's sisters to share a bedroom with her and report what she saw. He wanted more confirmation that these reports were more than the delusions of someone dealing with a little understood medical condition. Her sister was afraid but agreed, and she would claim to see the ghost of a woman holding a dead baby as well. The thumpy noises seemed to follow Gottlieben as she moved around the house. Dr. Spath stayed overnight twice and observed this phenomena. He reported that the situation was worse than imagined. The noises were so loud and frequent that tourists now came from out of town to see the haunted house for themselves. Blumhart was frustrated. He didn't know what to do, and everyone kept turning to him for guidance and help. He, the village mayor, six village counselors, and Moe's stranger, a relative, Moe's stanger, a relative of Gottlieben, all came to the Dida's home to investigate together on June 9, 1842. And when they entered the house, they were immediately greeted with spontaneous banging and knocking from around the house. But the focus seemed to be in Gottlieben's bedroom. They recorded 25 thumps, loud thumps, in three hours. One thump set a chair flying up off the floor, Another made plaster dust fall from the ceiling, and another still made the windows rattle. The men heard also a continuous gentle tapping from underneath Gottlieben's bed, but could not find the source of it. The investigative party left the house that night, returned the following morning to find Gottlieben unconscious. When she woke up, she said she'd seen the woman with the baby and fainted from fear. When Blumhart and his companions searched the house this day, now they found bird bones and other objects they felt must have been used in occult ceremonies at one point. Blumhart wrote, Further inquiry revealed that Gottlieben's early life had been filled with attempted initiations into such dark traffic at the behest of her elders. Bloomhart now ordered all of the Dita siblings to stay with the relative, while he and his trusted uh, members of the search party looked through the house. Bloomheart and the village policemen denied access to any visitors except their authorized investigative team. Bloomhart also reached out to surrounding villages and consulted proclaimed experts and poltergeists and spiritualists who were rumored to be able to contact the dead. But none of them would be able to help. Gottlieben was now staying with her godfather's family, and it didn't take long for paranormal activity to follow her. She started suffering from convulsive fits featuring massive personality shifts. Blumhart and two congregation members visited Gottlieben when she was having one of these fits and when Bloomheart prayed aloud Lord Jesus help me her convulsion stopped a short time later Gottlieben had another seizure that stopped when Bloomhart repeated this prayer this happened again and again unfortunately no amount of prayer seemed to release her permanently from her suffering if anything overall Gottlieben got worse when Bloomheart came near her she fainted, shook sometimes would foam with the mouth Soon the knocking sounds started up again at this new location. Gottlieben also began to see the woman holding the dead child again at the foot of her bed. When she described the woman to Bloomhart in detail now, he shockingly recognized her as one of his parishioners, a widow who died in 1840. As soon as Gottlieben finished describing this woman, Bloomhart and others present watched a shadow, a human-shaped shadow, enter Gottlieben's body. Now she appeared wholly possessed. Bloomhart initially refused to talk to or negotiate with the spirit now inside Gottlieb. His reasoning was that he didn't want to interact with any supernatural beings related to Satan. He prayed for answers and decided to follow 1 John 4 verses 1 through 3, which gives instructions to test spirits for godliness. That's chapter 4, sorry. Uh, It was just written in this number there. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Bloomhart now chose to speak to the spirit inside Gottlieb. He realized he was wrong to be afraid before. The two sat down together one day, and Bloomhart believes that although Gottlieb was physically present, the person he spoke with was the spirit of the widow, who had been part of his congregation before. Here's an excerpt of the conversation he claimed that followed. Is there any peace in the grave? No. Why not? It is the reward for my deeds. Have you not confessed everything? No. I murdered two children and buried them in a field. Do you not know where to get help? Can you not pray? I cannot pray. Do you not know Jesus who can forgive sins? I cannot bear the sound of that name. Are you alone? No. Who is with you? And then... The woman hesitated a long time before she finally answered, The most wicked of all. Bloomheart continued speaking to the woman inside Gottlieben. She claimed to have possessed seven others already. She confessed to practicing witchcraft, which bound her to Satan. She begged Bloomheart for permission to continue possessing Gottlieben. Bloomhart told her she had to leave and prayed to exorcise the spirit. Gottlieben's problems went away for a little while after this first true attempt at an exorcism. But then the woman's spirit came back. Bloomheart redoubled his prayer efforts. A witness would later say, this resulted in the removal of hundreds of demons, some of which attacked Bloomheart's helpers, though Bloomheart remained untouched throughout. Bloomheart continued to battle with spirits inside of Gatleben. Sometimes Gatleben's consciousness would emerge and she'd pray along with the pastor for spiritual healing and protection. Other times, the spirit of the widow seemed to speak. Or, even worse, the young woman would seem to be possessed and tormented by demons. Gatleben developed a hemorrhage in her breasts and said the wounds were from the, from the spirits inside her. She complained of burning hot hands wrapped around her throat. Blisters would appear on her skin the next morning. Gatleben was even witnessed being kicked and punched by an invisible force that also pushed her down the stairs. Gatleben started to vomit up objects as well. What? Sand, glass, nails, shoelaces, needles, and pins. Stranger still, Blumhardt claimed to witness some of these items emerging not from her mouth but pouring forth from her skin and then they would leave no wounds once they exited her body. Blumhart was shocked by what he saw. He brought in trusted council members and his wife to verify what he saw and ensure he wasn't going insane, and they all saw it as well. Blumhart encountered strange spirits speaking German, French, Italian, other unfamiliar languages. My Christmas of 1842 it had been over two years since this possession started. On December 30th, Gottlieben experienced another demonic attack, and this time it also curiously affected her sister, Katharina, and her brother Hansjork. Blumhardt sat with the family and prayed. So much prayer, two years worth now. Katharina was so disturbed by the feelings of spiritual entities now physically attacking her that she tried to rip her skin off. The attack lasted for hours. Katharina fell unconscious, and then when she awoke again, now thousands of voices seemed to pour forth from her almost at once. The leader of the voices claimed to be the angel of Satan and threatened to kill Katharina if he was cast out of her body. Blumhardt ignored the spirit, continued praying fervently. And then he claims that finally at 2 a.m., Katharina shouted suddenly in a demonic voice, Jesus is victor! And it was over. After two years of torment, it had all suddenly ended, and Gottlieb and her siblings would now recover fully. Gottlieb ended up moving into the parsonage to care for Bloomheart's children, later became a village kindergarten teacher. In 1852, Gottlieb moved in with the Bloomhearts to help manage their estate and married and had three children. Oh, so I guess she was already living there, but no more seizures, no more paranormal attacks. She died in early 1872 at the age of 56 following an illness, as people often did back then. Her last words allegedly were, Amen, in response to a prayer administered at her bedside by uh, the reverend's son, actually. Thousands have doubted Bloomhart's story, including many prominent Christian theologians. But others believe Bloomhart because he was described as a practical, realistic man, not given to fantastical whims or beliefs. The entire event had many witnesses, which makes quickly dismissing Bloomheart's account as fantastical as it is hard to do. If nothing else, yet another disturbing story, making many of us at least pause and question what hides in the darkness around us.
3: That's crazy.
2: Mm-hmm. Just, a yeah, interesting old kind of exorcism story. And I thought it was interesting just the way it's uh, written in the sources we found, like uh, orbs, shadows, a lot of stuff mm-hmm. you see in, like, modern encounters. hmm and so, I don't know. I I don't think that stuff was commonly reported back then.
3: No, because I think there's fear of being a witch or mm-hmm, sent away. Labeled. Yeah. Yeah. For mental illness, which they didn't call it that, but, you know, for being psychotic, crazy. Sure. Of the devil. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. You don't want to be burned.
3: No, nobody, know. no. No, 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 uh, no, no.
2: I have a few picks. I have a pick of Johann Blumhardt. Okay. His yep. son, uh, I believe his name is Christoph, and that was uh, also a kind of a famous... Uh, minister in Germany in the 19th century, and he, then this, this he next looks
3: exactly like I thought he would look.
2: Did you really? Yeah, just like from that era.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, this next one is uh, ditas
3: and oh, She's so cute.
2: Yeah, like the only picture of her that's really out there, which makes sense. They didn't, they didn't do a lot of photo shoots back then. Weird. Uh, this next one, uh, just a nice little creepy exorcism pic that came up when I was looking for pics of uh Gottlieben.
3: That looks staged from a movie.
2: Yeah, I'm sure it is. It it wasn't credited in this uh, source, but uh, I'm sure. Yeah. And maybe Photoshopped a little as well with the eyes there, little glowing Mm -hmm. dots. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah.
2: Nice and creepy. And then just to lighten things up, a picture of Santa. It's the holiday season. Just normal Santa.
3: Didn't we see this photo last week? Last week? Yeah. uh I feel like I just saw this photo.
2: Uh, you might have saw it on the web somewhere. Maybe you saw it online, on Instagram or something. Did you lo- saw it on our socials. Oh, I was like, I'm scared of our socials. Thank you. I'm yeah. like,
3: I know I just saw it. So when I saw the photos, I was just like, oh, funny. God, did he show those in last week's episode? I just don't remember. I must have blocked it out. Did
2: Logan put this one on a Scared of that, uh-huh. That's hilarious. I just picked it at random looking for Creepy Santa, and I didn't even know he picked this one.
3: He did like a carousel of Creepy Santa photos. Oh, no,
2: that's hilarious. Yeah. I, let's, see, let's see if he found this next one, because I have one more okay. for the story. Okay. Did he also grab this one?
3: <laughs> no, he did not. That one's not creepy. That one's just.
2: I think it looks creepy. Like if you look at uh, his expression on his face, yeah, and the way he's seated compared to the little kid crying in front of him, also wearing red, it feels what? like a, like a ritual. Like Santa's about oh. to sacrifice that child.
3: Oh, I did not get that at oh, all. Okay, I got weird creep creep vibes Excuse based me. on the child's position.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I was not. Well, into- everyone knows Santa's sleigh needs children's blood. In order to fly. So, yes, right. That's, so, there's that, this that. photo makes sense. <laughs> Couple kids have to be sacrificed for the good of the rest of the children.
3: When I was out holiday shopping mm-hmm. two weeks ago, whatever it was, uh, it was so fun to be in the mall and see all the kids crying at Santa. It just is so comical. What, and what we, a weird tradition. I know. And, like, we've been there. About, mm-hmm. about, I don't think – I don't have any crying photos of our kids with Santa, Easter Bunny.
2: Um, I can't remember when Kyler was really – I do remember. I'm pretty sure it was Kyler – yeah, I remember at the the mall in Spokane, like, crying a little bit. But not, like, a crazy... No, not like not no, like that photo. No, nah, it was never that dramatic, no. you know? So it's kind of a bummer. I, I, think every, I think every parent kind of like, I don't want to be traumatized, but, but, may, but maybe forget you out a little bit. Oh, my God, it's just, so funny. Just, just for the pictures.
3: Yeah, there was, like, this girl, like, thrashing herself out of the stroller. I don't
1: wanna! Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> so great. And the mom was pretty funny. She was just kind of, like, laughing, like, okay, yeah. here we go. <laughs>
2: it's a rite of passage
3: (laughs) yep yeah god sit
2: on the creepy man it is such a weird thing it is
3: so gross go sit on the creepy creepy. strange
2: go go (laughs) sit on the strange uh, creepy man's uh, lap yeah
3: yeah big fat old white man Mm
0: -hmm.
3: well it is like in his velvet suit with his hot little like female elves like what is that why is there always like a weird they'll get like um Mm -hmm. really hot young girls to be like the elf helpers i'm like this is Fucking weird.
2: Yeah, I guess, the, yeah, the whole thing is really weird. Yeah. Where you have, like, 60-year-old, uh, you know, oh, heavy God. Santa man, and then you have 20-year-old hot Santa elf lady. Yeah. And then you have scared babies. Uh-huh. It's an interesting little trifecta there.
3: What's that movie with, like, the drunk Santa? It's like mall Santa? Oh,
2: uh, Bad Santa with Bad Billy Santa. Bob Thornton.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of love that movie. Mm-hmm. You could probably watch it this weekend. It's pretty great.
2: <laughs> yeah, that one's a that one's a pretty, pretty adult Christmas movie, that one.
3: I know. That's why I like it. Mm-hmm.
2: Are you ready to hear some Victorian-era horror?
3: Um, or do you have questions I was about that story? Looking, okay, this this isn't, like, really relevant to the story, but kind of. Mm-hmm. Now, your family was not a praying family, so you probably didn't pray Correct. over meals. No. Okay. Well, we did in my house growing up, and all of a sudden, like, when you were somewhere in the story, you're talking about praying over a meal or something. I just was like, oh, yeah, like, we would say this prayer, and then I would My brain just went to like, huh, I wonder if my dad made that up. Is that a prayer everybody said? So my dad would say, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hand, we are fed. Thank you, Lord, for our daily bread. And then my dad added like Hmm. some like thing. um, He who eats the fastest eats the mostest. One, two, three, go. And then we were allowed to eat.
2: (laughs) I was just picturing like making up a a really like irreverent one. Like you're still praying. But like there's there's, I don't think there's anything against profanity. Like you can't Mm. blaspheme. But I don't think it's written in the book about profanity. No. I, was, I was like, God is good. God is great. Let me crush his fucking plate. Amen. <laughs>
3: oh, if you were Greek, that'd be great. You'd throw, I just
2: meant like crush it, like eat it so fast.
3: Oh, I see. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. why would you want to throw your plate of food on the floor? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, the And then at some point in the story, you were talking about like uh, when you started talking about the woman, the shadowy figure at the foot yeah. of the bed that seems to be the big source of it. I was flashing back on how I just told you that I saw a shadow in our house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it was a couple weeks ago. I can't believe I forgot to tell you because when I saw it, it didn't freak me out. Because, you know, I think my grandma's there. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, based on my spirit work and, like, working with my pendulum and stuff in the house. Yeah. And, like, I've been doing it more. Which is, like, maybe maybe not a great idea. But (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's her. And after our witchy friend came to our house, she said that the kitchen—remember how she said, like, uh, do you ever see or think you see something here?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was
3: like, oh yeah, like maybe, you know, but maybe like more over here because we're like an open concept. And I was sitting at our dining room table and I like looked over and I definitely saw like a pfft out of the corner of my eye. Eek. But I wasn't scared. I mean, I wasn't comfortable. Yeah, I was more like, oh God, did that just happen? <laughs> and then I looked for the dogs and they were both lying down. So it wasn't one of them and I right. was home alone. So yeek. Yeek. Hopefully it's not that lady. hmm Holding a baby.
2: Yeah, that'd be extra scary to Whoa. see a- scary to see, like, a a ghostly visage at the uh, foot of your bed, but then if they're holding something that, like, like yeah, just, like, that's just such a weird thing. Like, they're undead, they're the spirits, yeah. and then holding something that looks dead, mm-hmm. like a dead, uh, yeah, baby. I mean, that's terrifying, yeah.
3: And did you say visage? I thought it was visage.
2: Are you being serious right now? Yeah. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. Okay, now I have to, I have to bring out my dictionary.com, <laughs> because uh, I'd love it both we were... Your, both of us were wrong, but I'm 99.9% sure it's visage. Visage? You thought it was visage?
3: No, vi- uh, visage.
2: Visage? Like a massage? <laughs> yeah. But with V vi- on the front? Yeah. Okay, let's see.
3: Visage. Visage?
1: Visage.
2: Visage. 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 visage.
3: Okay, well, visage it is. The
2: face. Uh, this is weird, though. Here it says... Um, the face, usually with reference to shape, features, expression, etc., etc. Oh, to aspect, appearance. But I've heard it. I've heard it used in paranormal sense. Uh, but
3: like the appearance of, so the visage of.
2: Maybe you know what? Maybe I just made that up in that context. Maybe that was just the wrong word. Ugh. Just saw the apparition. The you run out of synonyms sometimes. I
3: know. I
2: know. Now, now, now I'm wondering, I'm like, I might just pulled that out of my ass. A ghost, well, no, a ghostly visage, I guess it would be like a ghostly face. So I did use it incorrectly.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. but but it says like the appearance of. Right. So like also I think if we no, no, no. want to be a little fast and loose with it, it could just sure. mean like, you know, I saw something, a shape of something. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give Okay, that you. sounds good. I'll give you your visage.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, are, are you ready for some uh, Victorian era horror now?
3: Yeah, sure.
2: Uh, we're going to head to 1895 right after a quick sponsor break. What is the most basic gift you have ever given the moms in your life for Mother's Day? Flowers, a candle, some random knickknack you picked up at the last minute because you completely spaced Mother's Day?
3: I have definitely made the mistake of procrastinating gifts for Mother's Day. And then, like the Friday before, I run to whatever store is open and convince myself that, yes, yes, my mom does need another coffee mug that declares she's the (laughs) world's best. So lame.
2: This year, how about one upping yourself by giving the moms in your life an Aura picture frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to any mom at any age. Aura Frames connect easily to Wi-Fi and have unlimited storage so you can share as many pictures as you want.
3: This year, as many of you know, I am on a spending freeze, but one of my carve-outs was meaningful gifts for the people I love. I don't want to give all of the moms in our lives something that won't bring them joy. We are giving Aura Frames to the moms in our world because they are timeless, heartwarming gifts.
2: Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code SCARED at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
3: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
2: Visit BetterHelp.com slash Scared to Death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel pcom Scared to Death.
3: Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking, and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors' No Prep, No Mess Meals.
2: Factors never-frozen, always-fresh meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen.
3: I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, this summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time.
2: Head to factormeals.com slash scaredtodeath50 and use code scaredtodeath50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code death 50 at factormeals.com slash SCAREDTODEATH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Thanks for listening, Creeps and Peepers. Now we actually head to 1895.
3: I've decided I can't not have one of these guys.
2: Oh, man. Well, you, the, you got a mute button, so you I know. got the advantage I'm going to go there. for it. Have that peep. Uh, heads up, Creeps and Peepers, that some of the language... Uh, I'll be sharing in this story is a little cringy, but of course it will. The story was written over 125 years ago. Uh, saying this now because I will not address these instances as they occur, just a few of them. Just know that I'm aware and, you know, just remember it's not my story.
3: But is it like like old-timey proper yeah, language?
2: No, it's like old-timey um, uh, ethnic references.
3: Oh, I was just going to say, is it some like racist language? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. But I just, uh, I feel like now some people uh, get, get caught up in like present. Some people just forget I feel like if if I don't say that up front, that it's like, yeah, this is just a story I'm telling as it was written, not a story tweaked for, you know, the 2021.
3: Perfect. There we go. Thanks for the heads up. Yeah. I'm going to go back to eating my peep.
2: Enjoy. A little bit of setup here before I start. Uh, In early 20th century England, holiday ghost stories were especially popular. And a number of horror authors made sure to release their spooky tales every year just in time for Christmas. In 2019, we told the tale of Smee, by Londoner A.M. Burridge in episode 16 of Scared to Death in the Walls. 2020, we told the 1868 story of The Ghost's Summons by London author Ada Buisson in episode 68, The Devil's Toy Box. And now for 2021, I'll be reading Lost Hearts, written in 1895, by M.R. James. Montague Rhodes, James. Uh, What a name. I know, Montague. You don't meet a lot of Montagues.
3: I know, that's a great name.
2: James was an English scholar, historian, and fiction author, mostly known for his ghost stories. And many of his spooky tales were written as Christmas Eve entertainment to be read aloud around the fireplace at his home to his friends. Lost Hearts considered one of his best stories. Let's find out what scared people back on Christmas Eve, 1895. Time now for the tale of Lost Hearts. It was, as far as I can ascertain... In September of the year eighteen eleven, that a post sw- that a post chaise drew up before the door of Azerby Hall, in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy who was the only passenger in the chaise who jump sorry, is that how you say it? Huh. It doesn't look right my pronunciation. Is it it's like a chase chase lounge, but it's like chaise. 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 Oh, that's such a weird word for my tongue. It's like I, I had a pronunciation guide and everything.
3: Well, because does it looks like chase with an eye. Right,
2: it looks like chase with an eye, and I'm like chaise, but okay. Shays. Fancy. Well And this is a carriage uh, in this context here. Mm -hmm.
3: Not a couch. Not a couch not a couch,
2: Not pulling up on a couch. It's a little (laughs) boy who was the only passenger in the chase uh, and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. He saw a tall, square, red-brick house built in the reign of Anne. A stone-pillared porch had been added in the pure classical style of 1790. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment, pierced with a round window, crowned the front. There were wings to right and left, connected by curious glazed galleries, supported by colonnades with a central block. These wings plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. Each was surmounted by an ornamental cupola with a gilded vane. An evening light shone on the building, masking the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall in front stretched a flat park studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower buried in trees on the edge of the park only its golden weathercock catching the light was striking six and the sound came gently beating down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression though tinged with the sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn that was conveyed to the mind of the boy who was standing in the porch waiting for the door to open to him. Pocheys had brought him from Warwickshire where some 6 months before he had been left an orphan now owing to the generous offer of his elderly cousin Mr Abney he had come to live at Azerby the offer was unexpected because all who knew anything of Mr Abney looked upon him as somewhat austere somewhat as a austere recluse into whose steady going household the advent of a small boy would import a new and it seemed incongruous element the truth is that very little was known of Mr. Avney's pursuits or temper. The professor of Greek at Cambridge had been heard to say that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the later pagans than did the owner of Azuby. Certainly his library contained all the available books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras, and the Neoplatonists. In the marble-paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull. Slain, Mithras, slain a bull. This is like level 10 pronunciation, by the way. I
3: Vic- would I have crushed it.
2: Victorian English. God damn. It's okay. great. I love it. It's, I, it's great for people who can do it correctly. Uh, not taking Latin classes it is a struggle bus for me. I failed Latin. <laughs> uh, which had been important from the Levant at great expense by the owner. He had contributed a description of it to the Gentleman's Magazine. I understand why uh, people had to speak like assholes back then. You can't like sound just casual and cool. If you're uh reading words like this,
3: I you... like I love it though, okay, all right, keep going okay. tell, tell me more, <laughs> I love it
2: and he had written a remarkable series of articles in the Critical Museum on the superstitions of the Romans of the lower Empire. He was looked upon in fine as a man wrapped up in his books, and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbors that he should ever have heard of his orphan cousin Stephen Elliot, much more that he should have volunteered to make him an inmate of Azerby Hall. "'whatever may have been expected by his neighbors. "'It is certain that Mister. Abney, "'the tall, the thin, the austere, "'seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. "'The moment the front door was opened, "'he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. "'How are you, my boy? How are you? "'How old are you?' said he. "'That is, you are not too much tired, I hope, "'by your journey to eat your supper.' "'No, thank you, sir,' said Master Elliot. "'I am pretty well.' "'That's a good lad,' said Mr. Abney. "'And how old are you, my boy?' It seemed a little odd that he should have asked the question twice in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. I'm twelve years old, next birthday, sir, said Stephen. And when is your birthday, my dear boy? Eleventh of September, eh? That's well, that's very well. Nearly a year hence, isn't it? I like, (laughs) ha ha, I like to get these things down in my book. Sure it's twelve, certain? Yes, quite, sir, or quite sure, sir. Very well. Take him to Mr. Bunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, supper, whatever it is. Yes, sir, answered the staid, Mr. Parks, and conducted Stephen to the lower regions. Mrs. Bunch was the most comfortable and human person whom Stephen had as yet met at Abserby. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Mrs. Bunch had been born in the neighborhood some 55 years before the date of Stephen's arrival, and her residence at the hall was of 20 years standing. Consequently, if anyone knew the ins and outs of the house and the district, Mrs. Bunch knew them. "'and she was by no means disinclined to communicate her information. "'Certainly there were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens "'which Stephen, who was of an adventurous and inquiring turn, "'was anxious to have explained to him. "'Who built the temple at the end of the Laurel Walk? "'Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, "'sitting at the table, with a skull under his hand? "'These and many similar points were cleared up "'by the resources of Mrs. Bunch's powerful intellect. "'There were others, however, "'of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory.' One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, reflecting on his surroundings. "'Is Mr. Abney a good man? And will he go to heaven?' he suddenly asked, with the peculiar confidence which children possess in the ability of their elders to settle these questions, the decision of which is believed to be reserved for other tribunals. "'Good? Blessed child,' said Mrs. Bunch. "'Master's as kind a soul as I ever see.' "'Didn't I never tell you the little boy as he took out in the street, "'as you may say, this seven years back, "'and the little girl two years after I first come here? "'No. Do tell me about them, Mrs. Bunch, now, this minute.' "'Well,' said Mrs. Bunch, "'the little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about. "'I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day, "'and give orders to Mrs. Ellis, as was Housekeeper then, "'as she should be to take care with, take every care with, "'and the poor child hadn't no one belonging to her.' She told me so her own self, and here she lived with us, in a matter of three weeks it might be, and then whether she were some think of a gypsy in her blood or what not, but one morning she out of her bed, before any of us had opened an eye, and neither track nor yet trace of her have I set eyes on since. Master was wonderful put about, and had all the ponds dragged, but it's my belief she was run away by them gypsies, for there was singing round the house for as much an hour the night she went, and Parks, he declare he heard them a-calling in the woods all that afternoon." "'Dear, dear, an odd child she was, "'so silent in her ways and all. "'But I was wonderful taken up with her, "'so domesticated she was, surprising. "'And what about the little boy?' said Stephen. "'Ah, the poor boy,' sighed Mrs. Bunch. "'He was a foreigner. "'Giovanni,' he called himself, "'and he come a-tweaking his erdy-gurdy round "'about the drive one winter day "'and mastered him in that minute "'and asked about where he came from "'and how old he was "'and how he made his way "'and where was his relatives "'and all as kind as heart could wish.' But it went the same way with him. They're an unruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose. And he was off one fine morning just the same as the girl. Why, he went and what he done was our question for as much as a year after. For he never took his hurdy-gurdy. And there it lays on the shelf. I have no idea what she's talking about in half of this. (laughs) (laughs) Hurdy-gurdy? Yeah. The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross-examination of Mrs. Bunch. And in efforts to extract a tune from the hurdy-gurdy. That night he had a curious dream. At the end of the passage, at the top of the house in which his bedroom was situated, there was an old disused bathroom. It was kept locked, but the upper half of the door was glazed. And since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had long been gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall on the right hand, with its head towards the window. On the night of which I'm speaking, Stephen Elliott found himself, as he thought, looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the window, and he was gazing at a figure which lay in the bath. His description of what he saw reminds me of what I once beheld myself in the famous vaults of St. Michael's Church in Dublin, which possesses the horrid property of preserving corpses from decay for centuries. A figure, inexpressibly thin and pathetic, of a dusty leaden color, enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips crooked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the region of the heart. As he looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir... The terror of the sight forced even backwards, and he awoke to the fact that he was indeed standing on the cold, boarded floor of the passage in the full light of the moon. With a courage which I do not think can be common among boys of his age, he went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dreams were really there. It was not, and he went back to bed. Mrs. Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story, and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Mr. Abney, moreover, to whom he confided his experiences at breakfast, was greatly interested and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. The spring equinox was approaching, and Mr. Abney frequently reminded his cousin, adding that it had always been considered by the ancients to be a critical time for the young, that Stephen would do well to take care of himself and to shut his bedroom window at night, and that the censorians had some valuable remarks on the subject. Two incidents that occurred about this time made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually uneasy and oppressed night that had passed, though he could not recall any particular dream that he had. The following evening, Mrs. Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. Gracious me, Master Stephen, she broke forth rather irritably. How do you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way? Look here, sir. What trouble you do give to poor servants that have to darn and mend after you? There was indeed a most destructive and apparently wanton series of slits or scorings in the garment, which would undoubtedly require a skillful needle to make good. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long parallel slits about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure they were not there the night before. But he said, Mrs. Bunch, they are just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them. Mrs. Bunch gazed at him, open-mouthed, then snatched up a candle, departed hastily from the room, and was heard making her way upstairs. In a few minutes she came down. Well, she said, Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me how them marks and scratches can have come there, too high up for any cat or dog to have made them, much less a rat, for all the world like a Chinaman's fingernails, as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us when we were girls, when we was girls together. I wouldn't say nothing to Master, not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear, and just turn the key of the door when you go to your bed. I always do, Mrs. Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. Ah, that's a good child. Always say your prayers and then no one can hurt you. Herewith Mrs. Bunch addressed herself to mending the injured nightgown, with intervals of meditation until bedtime. This was on a Friday night in March 1812. On the following evening the usual duet of Stephen and Mrs. Bunch was augmented by the sudden arrival of Mrs. Parks, the butler, who or oh, Mr. Parks, the butler, who as a rule kept himself rather to himself in his own pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was, moreover, flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. Master may get up his own wine if he likes of an evening, was his first remark. Either I do it in the daytime or not at all, Mrs. Bunch. I don't know what it may be. Very like it's the rats, or the wind got into the cellars, but I'm not so young as I was, and I can't go through it as I have done. Well, Mr. Parks, you know it is a surprising place for the rats, is the hall. I'm not denying that, Mrs. Bunch, and to be sure, many a time I've heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. I never laid no confidence in that before, but tonight, if I'm demeaned myself to lay my ear to the door of the further bin, I could pretty much have heard what they were saying.' "'Oh, there, Mr. Parks, I have no patience with your fancies. "'Rats talking in the wine cellar, indeed. "'Well, Mrs. Bunch, I have no wish to argue with you. "'All I say is, if you choose to go to the far bin "'and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. "'What nonsense you do talk, Mr. Parks! "'Not fit for children to listen to. "'Why, he'll be frightening Master Stephen there, out of his wits.' "'What, Master Stephen?' said Parks, "'awakening to the consciousness of the boy's presence.' Master Stephen knows well enough when I'm just playing a joke with you, Mrs. Bunch. In fact, Master Stephen knew much too well to suppose that Mr. Parks had in the first instance intended a joke. He was interested, not altogether pleasantly, in the situation. But all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give any more detailed account of his experiences in the wine cellar. We have now arrived at March 24th, 1812. It was a day of curious experiences for Stephen. A windy, noisy day, which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence of the grounds and looked out into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on resistlessly and aimlessly, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might arrest their flight, and bring them once again into contact with the living world of which they had formed a part. After luncheon that day, Mr. Abbey said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight as late as eleven o'clock in my study? I shall be busy until that time, and I wish to show you something connected with your future life, which is most important that you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Mrs. Bunch, nor to anyone else in the house, and you had better go to your room with the usual time. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly got a grasp at the opportunity of sitting up until eleven o'clock. He looked in at the library door on his way upstairs that evening and saw a brazier, which he had often noticed in the corner of the room, moved out before the fire. An old silver gilt cup stood on the table, filled with red wine, and some written sheets of paper lay near it. Mr. Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier from a round silver box as Stephen passed, but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen, and there was still a night and a full moon. At about ten o'clock, Stephen was standing at the open window of his bedroom, looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods was not yet lulled to rest. From time to time, strange cries, as of lost and despairing wanderers, sounded from across the mirror. They might be the notes of owls or water birds, Yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were not they coming nearer? "'Now that they sounded from the nearer side of the water, "'and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about amongst the shrubberries. "'Then they ceased, but just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window "'and resuming his reading of Robinson Crusoe, "'he caught sight of two figures standing at the graveled terrace "'that ran along the garden side of the hall. "'The figures of a boy and a girl, as it seemed. "'They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. "'Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly "'his dream of the figure in the bath.' The boy inspired him with more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half-smiling, with her hands clasped over her heart, the boy, a thin shape, with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long and that the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms thus raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle, On the left side of his chest there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Azerby all that evening. In another moment this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study, for the hour appointed for their meeting was near at hand. The study or library op- opened out of the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not so easy. It was not locked, he felt sure, for the key was on the outside of the door as usual. His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr. Abney was engaged. He was speaking. What? Why did he try to cry out? And why was the cry choked in his throat? Had he, too, seen the mysterious children? But now everything was quiet and the door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. On the table, in Mr. Abney's study, certain papers were found which explained the situation to Stephen Elliot. When he was of an age to understand them, the most important sentences were as follows. It was a belief very strongly and generally held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I have had such experience as induces me to place confidence in their assertions, that by enacting certain processes, which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexion, "...a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual faculties in a man may be attained, that, for example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow creatures, an individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded of Simon Magnus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased." by the agency of the soul of a boy, whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine recognitions, he had murdered. I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of twenty-one years. To the testing of the truth of this receipt, I have devoted the greater part of the last twenty years selecting as the corpora vilia of my experiments such persons as could conveniently be removed without occasioning a sensible gap in society. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on March 24, 1792. The second by the removal of a wandering Italian lad named Giovanni Paoli on the night of March 23, 1805. The final... "'Victim,' to employ a word repugnant in the highest degree to my feelings, "'must be my cousin Stephen Elliot. "'His day must be this March 24, 1812. "'The best means of effecting the required absorption "'is to remove the heart from the living subject, "'to reduce it to ashes, "'and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. "'The remains of the first two subjects, at least, it will be to conceal. "'A disused bathroom or wine cellar will be found convenient for such purpose.' Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of the subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts. But the the man of philosophic temperament, to whom alone the experiment is appropriate, will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of these beings to wreak their vengeance on him. I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the enlarged and emancipated existence, which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so-called, but eliminating, to a great extent, the prospect of death itself. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wild cat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney was had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliott's study of the papers I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion. The devil got him. I think the ghost of the, one of those two kids got him.
3: Maybe. I was just mm-hmm. writing down, like, it was some weird ritual. Oh, yeah, it was totally a yeah, ritual. Yeah, so gross. He was going to cut he had, his heart out?
2: Mm-hmm, he had to take and burn it. He had to take the hearts of three people under the age of 21... And then do a bunch of other things, oh. and he believed that that in the story would give him immortality. It-
3: yeah, eternal life. Yeah, that's what I was writing down. Mm-hmm. After I ate, I had two peeps.
2: Oh, you had two peeps.
3: I did. I did. They were so good.
2: That was – that was those kind of stories, I am, like, the most laser-focused at, like, mm. reading them aloud. Like, when I read them, when I prep them yeah. and I go over things, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is fine. I know what uh, most of these words, how they sound but it's the rhythm of how people used to speak back then.
3: I know, it's pretty funny. Your your whole cadence and your voice changes.
2: Yep, I can't speak Mr. in my norm-
3: Abney, la, 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 la.
2: Yeah, cuz if I spoke in my normal cadence, I would butcher 30% of those words.
3: Mm, fair.
2: It, yeah, it's just it's just the way which I get now when people do narration for like Dickens and stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, you just can't like fly through it like I I could even I mean, like I
3: could, I totally could. <laughs> I'm just a pro at language.
2: Like, like, okay, like, like this. This ends. Here we go. I couldn't if I just read this quick. It's recorded, Simon Magus. He's able to fly in the air, become visible as soon as it We don't place. talk
3: that fast in life. So, well,
2: that's true. But <laughs> it's record. But even like that. It is. I always say it's. I always contract.
3: Yeah, so you would just say it's.
2: But if I'm reading it verbatim, mm. that's the rhythm switch. When it's somebody else's story...
3: But I would say, like, it is. Like It would be different It is recorded
2: of Simon's Mag- Simon Magnus. He was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased by the agency of the soul of a boy, whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine recognitions... I guess I could do it a little more.
3: You could do it, but it, it doesn't carry the same sort of... Um, energy. It just doesn't feel right.
2: Yeah, it feels appropriate to the the language to put a little more pomp uh, into the voice.
3: I wanted you to have on like a velvet smoking jacket, a pipe, Mm -hmm. some sort of weird hat.
2: When I finished studying at Cambridge, I took some time to work on my uh, oratory skills for the reading of dark tales around the holidays i don't know
3: now that's a different voice altogether mm, I, don't know. I don't know that was some like weird tongue rolling happening
2: there <laughs> uh, yeah that guy that kind of, like would be the caricature version
3: yeah yeah exactly uh,
2: gather round everyone i have a frightening tale for you to hear this evening
3: <laughs> just made me think of the kid's grandfather Oh,
2: yeah. Uh, Here's some pictures. Um,
3: Oh, okay, great. uh,
2: This is author Montague Rhodes James, a.k.a. M.R. James. Uh, And we actually talked about him way back in episode six, randomly, just his thoughts on the afterlife. uh, Shared some of his kind of, like, viewpoints where just, like, these mysteries you don't understand. I mean, he had some interesting, in addition to writing fiction, like, did believe that something was out there for sure. Maybe. Um, Some... Maybe maybe there's something out there, or maybe you yeah, believe. Okay. But probably not. You don't think there's anything out there? Well, I'm talking about ghosts and stuff.
3: Oh yeah, definitely.
2: It's such a weird. It's so weird how we all have our things. Mm-hmm. Like I will draw my line at like crystals yeah. right now, and you'll believe in uh, you know like spirits, uh-huh. but not a godlike power.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, because yeah. the spirits, I'm like, I because I don't think the spirits are just out of nowhere. They're us. They are our leftovers.
2: Mm. Yeah, all right. But where did it? Okay. We could have wow. a whole the, theological debate. But.
3: Science.
2: <laughs> Science doesn't explain spirits.
3: Because they don't know yet. They're going to figure it out. Give it time.
2: You could argue God the same way.
3: Well, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah.
2: um, this next one, uh, some artwork. Oh, by uh, Paul. Fun. Yeah, by Paul inspired by Lost actually, Hearts. That's
3: actually really cool. That would make a great Halloween card. Yeah, that would. hmm mm-hmm.
2: And then this is, I was just curious about that St. Mikan's Church in Dublin. Oh, so, yeah. So this is a picture of the corpses. Oh, oh. Yeah, that's there uh, right now. Uh, They recently had some vandals, took some stuff, but got got it returned, actually.
3: Okay, and so now is it under lock and key? Uh,
2: I don't know that detail, but I know you can take, I think you can still take tours. Uh, I
3: would hope that it's in like a room, like fiberglass, you know, so you can't.
2: It wasn't uh, until recently. Maybe now they're changing that.
3: I can't believe they would just leave that out in the open. Well,
2: it was locked, but somebody smashed in the doors to like their cellar.
3: I can't believe that they didn't have like, you know, Mm. bulletproof glass. Oh, yeah. God, where were we? Oh boy, am I making this up? Nope. We were in Peru, and we went like down this like, oh na- yeah, uh-huh. narrow uh, stairway into like a um. It
2: was in it was in a Lima. It was a, in an old Spanish church.
3: Yeah, and I mean, they had
2: the bones of uh, various people like in the in the foundation.
3: Yeah, what would you call that? Like a um a crypt.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, and you could see they did. Have, they had like some sort of like fiberglass like windows, basically, mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. could see like some skulls and it's Yeah, it was creepy but very cool.
2: Uh, the foundation of that church built in 1095.
3: 1095?
2: Yep. It served initially some of the last remaining Vikings in the area. Um uh, cool. and, and then uh, some of the remains there are thought to be over 800 years old. Wow. Exact identities unknown, but the one, and actually I think the head of this one was stolen and then re- retrieved recently, but the Crusader, they call it, mm-hmm. believed to be a soldier brought back after dying in the Fourth Crusades, you know, eight Unbelievable. centuries ago. Mm-hmm.
3: I immediately when they showed a skull, I was like, "Ooh, what happens on the next Yellowstone?" Because that's where we're at. They just... Ah,
2: yes, true, <laughs> true. Uh, uh,
3: they just found they found some stuff. I don't want to give anything away if you're not caught up.
2: <laughs> uh, two more pictures. Oh, this is uh, dang. I just okay. have I just have another fun uh, Santa pick here. <laughs> Did you remember seeing that one online? Love I, know, to find I was just that? trying
3: to think. I don't know, Joe. Is that one familiar? No, I don't think so. Okay, I like her her. One, her finger. Uh-huh.
2: Just like <sighs> yep, pointing. Get me out of here. And then one last one. The Santa's not scary in this one, but like like a demonic looking little elf behind Santa. Like, what is that? <laughs> what? that,
3: that the feels, voice seems oblivious. That feels staged a I know, bit, it does. It like does. Like the parents did it or something, you know? <laughs> That's what Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's funny. All right. Well, are you ready for... I'm
2: ready. Oh, I'm you, relaxed now. You,
3: you talked for an hour.
2: I know. i sorry. And... Uh, yeah, because the word count wasn't crazy high, because I do pay attention to that, to not make the episodes, like, wildly vary. Yeah. But um, because I changed my cadence, it, uh-huh. it drew it out substantially. I
3: know. I was like, okay, buddy, you've been talking for a while.
2: I know. I know. It is, there, You know what? I look at it, the tradition of the Victorian stories. No, oh, no, but I will say, like, I don't find them, like, that scary. Interesting. But, but I, I like um, how much scarier stories have gotten since. To me, well, it's, like, a good point of comparison. It's, like, that's, that story, I bet, scared the shit out of well, some people in 1895.
3: Say, it's relative to the times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree.
2: But I love i love that now we'd be, like, get the fuck out of here.
3: And I was, like, oh, okay. So I mean, immediately you were, like, and then there were two kids and now there's not. I was, like, okay, yep, I see where I, this I, is headed.
2: Uh huh. But I love that we just keep building, you yeah. know, with, like, the tradition of, you know, any kind of, like, literature or fiction and stuff. But you learn from people, uh, you know, that wrote before you or mm-hmm. shot movies before you. And uh, which is always what kills me about people who talk about like classic movies, for example. It's like, oh, yeah. man, this this uh, Dracula from 1918 so scary. I'm like, no, it's not.
3: No, it's not. It's probably no. great. It's probably really cool. It's but- probably scary back then. Yeah.
2: But we've had too much time to fucking improve. Yay. Art evolving.
3: <laughs> Do you want to peep?
2: Mm, no, I don't have a mute button over here, so I can't uh, quietly eat you could it. You can
3: move your microphone away if you want one.
2: Uh, I'm, I'm okay for now. Thank you, though. Okay,
3: well, they're delicious. <laughs> who doesn't love a sugar marshmallow? Mm-hmm. I've been on a baking kick. I made Rice Krispie treats, which my Rice Krispie treats are famous. They're so good. They're like the big, fat, thick ones. Mm-hmm. I put four bags of marshmallows in them. It's very serious. Nice. I made some Swedish coffee bread. I made gingerbread. I made.
2: Yeah, you, went, you went nuts. It's so delicious, everything yeah. you've
3: made. I made spritz cookies, which is like a thing that my family did. And I found out, like, I only know one other person that does that, hmm. spritz cookies. And I made, oh, banana pudding i cannot wait to eat banana pudding tonight
2: it looks delicious in the, in so the fridge good. there
3: it's in a trifle bowl that's mm. what that's called just so you know okay okay well are you uh ready for my slightly different kind of vibe this week i am it's, yeah. it's,
2: it's, the whole show has been a different vibe so far so okay. i know
3: so look at look at us just lining up mm-hmm. yep so we're we're going all the way back to a very early episode like this will reference a very early episode of the uh-oh not Vassalia.
2: <laughs> uh, oh man! See, is it um,
3: Velisca? Yeah, I just I really don't know where I got Vassalia from. Velisca. Lockerville. <laughs> Vis- Victorville. Vassalia. Vis- Vis- Visage. Virginia City. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do love Virginia City. Um, but yeah, I thought it was cool that it like ties all the way back. Uh, they they said the title of the episode was "Cover the Mirrors," but this is way. Sort of back in the beginning that we did the Viscula, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh axe murders. Well, that yep. you covered it on your side. Yeah, so fun, fun throwback. Mm-hmm. All right, well let's uh, let's get to it. What?
2: I, I was just cracking up just because then that time you said it as uh, you said v- viscola instead of Velisca. It's a it's a tricky word.
3: What is up with me? <laughs> <I'm, laughs>
2: Vasilia, Vasilska Veruca salt. <laughs>
3: <laughs> What is it again? It's Velisca. No, it's not. No, it is. No, no, it is.
2: It's a it's, uh, Velisca axe mortars.
3: Liska. Why can't mm-hmm. I get that in my brain? It's, that's an odd word. It, well, and it's, I guess it is the way it looks. Well, anyways, <laughs> let's see how many times I can get it wrong. Try, Van- try not to interrupt with laughter.
2: Okay, let's go to Vancouver.
1: <laughs>
3: okay. <laughs> Hello, Lord of the Creeps and Lady of the Peeps. I hope this email finds you both well. Your bad magic. Uh, I hope this finds both of you, your bad magic crew, and families all happy and well. This story takes place in November two thousand fourteen and continues to this day. With further, without further ado, I impart unto you the gift of content. <laughs> <laughs> in, in the summer of two thousand twelve, local media here in Omaha were running stories about the one hundredth anniversary of the axe murders of the Villis- of Villisca, Iowa. For new listeners, the tale was one of the first told on Scared to Death in an episode titled, "Cover the Mirrors." I won't get into the history of the. Uh, I won't get into the history in detail, but here's the gist of it. In the early morning hours of Monday, June 10th, 1912, an unknown person or persons brutally murdered eight people, six of whom were children between the ages of five and 12, in the small, quiet town of Villisca, Iowa. The case remains unsolved today. Knowing that the house was available for overnight leasing, I pitched the idea to a few friends, and to my surprise, no one said no. So after some careful and horribly overthought planning and saving our pennies for months, I finally set the date at November 21st, 2014. And immediately, my excitement was palpable. You see, I had always wanted to dip my toes into the world of paranormal investigating. When you book an overnight stay at the house, the owner will call you two weeks ahead of time to confirm your reservation, and the timing could not have been more ominous. The day before a confirmation call, the Axe Murder House was in the news again, but for a very different reason. A man named Robert Lorson Jr. was taken to Omaha's Creighton University Hospital for that from the Axe Murder House with what was being called a self-inflicted stab wound to the chest. I won't get into the details here, but the wound was neither self-inflicted nor in his chest. It was in the middle of his back. Mm. Mrs. Lynn, the owner of the house, called the next morning, a slight tremble in her voice, to not only confirm our reservation, but to say that she would refund us 100%, no questions asked, in light of the events of just a few hours earlier. I informed her that the incident only served to hype us up even more. The day finally arrived. My friend Mike and I left Omaha that afternoon and drove the hour and a half to Villisca. We arrive at sunset, the November air cooling rapidly as the shadows grew long, giving the evening a sense of an oddly familiar spookiness. We were the first to arrive and walked the grounds of the small property. After a short tour by a caretaker, who incidentally could be Dan's brother, the investigation <laughs> began in earnest. Altogether, there were 8 of us in this small house, and since we were all friends, we spent the first part of the night simply chit-chatting in the living room. You might think that I would have been upset by this, having planned and saved for this for over a year, but it was quite the opposite. I was comfortable and happy to just listen to everyone's ghost stories with my hot coffee while the cold winds howled outside. When we did actually start investigating, we found the house eerily quiet. The only solid evidence we got was some strange static on Mike's voice recorder and an odd light anomaly on a photo of the blue room, the same room that Mr. Larson was stabbed in just a few weeks before. As the night wore on, no further activity was recorded. It was peaceful, almost calming. We all headed home the next morning, disappointed that all that effort had been spent uh, spent setting that night up that bore no fruit. But hey, we had a good time in the old spooky house, and that is what made the trip worth it. It was when my wife and I got home, I realized I'd made one huge mistake. At the end of every single investigation you go on, you absolutely have to tell whatever's there to stay put, to not follow you. And I didn't. But it was, but it was so quiet that night, I had just brushed it all off. Activity at my house started almost immediately my living room tv would randomly turn itself on bookshelf decorations that hadn't been touched in years began diving to the floor lights all over the house began flickering i would feel little invisible fingers tap me slightly on the shoulder like a child wanting a drink of water after bedtime i would see shadows walking around the kitchen from the living room out of the corner of my eye i knew at this point that i had probably brought home one of the children with me this was confirmed when it began to speak to me i was home alone on a friday evening I had a date later that night, so I wanted to be as presentable as possible. After taking a shower, I found myself staring into my closet with no idea what to wear. I have like 200 t-shirts and had gone through them all twice, unable to decide. It happens to everyone. As I started a third run through, I heard a little girl's voice coming from the hallway telling me to just pick one. Not only spooked but embarrassed, I grabbed whatever my hand was on, put it on, finished getting ready and got the hell out for the night. Not long after, I caught sight of it. I was playing guitar in the basement music room when I felt eyes on me. I started to see shadows in the dark laundry room across from me. This happened most nights I played, but something was different this night. I had discovered a while before that the spirit liked it when I played along with Type O Negative, <laughs> the best. So I, so I played a few songs for it after setting up a few night vision cameras in the laundry room. I was about three songs in when I grabbed a beer out of my mini-fridge, cracked it open, turned around to sit back down and saw a little girl with long dark hair and a white nightgown running full speed up the basement steps into the kitchen. I was so excited I thought I had gotten a full-bodied apparition on camera. I immediately looked at the footage and my basement staircase was out of frame of all of them. Damn the luck. From what I had seen, I determined the spirit was one of the two girls who were spending the night, Lena or Ina Stillinger, and a sadness came over me. She might have followed me because I reminded her of her father or her brother. It makes the tragedy of the murders seem a little too real. The last thing I saw in the house before I moved out was a free-floating streak of light in the laundry room, like someone had run a flashlight over a pane of glass, but take away the flashlight in the glass. Definitely the weirdest thing I've ever seen. There's no windows in that room and only a single bulb for a light source. I now live in a little one-bedroom apartment, and I'm pretty sure she's still hanging around. Lights flicker, guitars pluck their own strings, and little fingers continue to tap on my computer chair when I'm gaming. She's even mimicked my voice while I was recording an episode of my own podcast, like she was talking over my right shoulder into the microphone. In fact, that's the only thing she's ever done that I've captured as evidence. Maybe I'm insane, but if I can give this child spirit that died over 100 years ago a sense of safety when she's visiting me, I'm good with that. After all, it's been six years. If she's going to turn malevolent, she probably would have done it by now. Rest assured, though, if she does, I'm no Darren. It comes to an end. Thanks for being the best podcast in the business. Keep on creeping and don't ever stop. Your loyal Annabelle, Jeff Delzite. That
2: was nice, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, Did Jeff ever mention the name of his podcast? I'm just curious. He did not. Oh, Jeff. Jeff. Oh, Jeff. That was a great moment to, to slip it in there with that detail of, like, catching it on audio. Oh, man. Um, Missed
3: opportunity, Jeff.
2: Typo Negative. That's pretty funny. I just, uh, uh, when he referenced that, that band, I've definitely listened to some Typo Negative putting together some, uh, some Scared of Death stories.
3: Oh, yeah, because you always like to listen to creepy music.
2: Mm-hmm. And they show up on some industrial, you know, metal playlists. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have I no idea who funny. they were. I was like, what is he, what is he saying? <laughs> it took me a second to realize yeah. it was a band.
2: Oh, yeah. I think they still might... A surprising amount of bands from that era are still around. I want to say, like, Typo Negative had some minor hits in the, like, mid-late 90s.
3: Thank you for your random trivia. <laughs> Everyone yeah, <that>. appreciates it. <laughs> but interesting, huh? Like, mm-hmm. do you do you ever think about whether or not you could just bring something home with you? Like, Like, you would go and mm-hmm. do an investigation. You would go and seek out—I mean, you used to say this—that you would go and yeah. seek it out. So if you were going to do that, wouldn't you be slightly concerned that— you could bring something home.
2: Well, we've talked about people bringing things from one place to another. I never mm-hmm. thought, I never put it in the context of an investigation mm-hmm. of like paranormal investigators when they're continually putting themselves mm-hmm. into places that are uh, you know supposed to be haunted. I mean, you'd think that like eventually all of them would bring something back with them. So, right. I, so I wonder if there was like protocols. I'm sure there is like cleansings and things that uh, people who are real serious about that do. I to, mean, I to, would to make sure. Yeah, but even then. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it sounds like this thing's really kind of been sticking around with Jeff.
3: I know. I like that it's not scary.
2: Right, right. He doesn't seem worried about it, really, because it's like uh, it's not threatening, menacing.
3: Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would want an unknown spirit just hanging around. Like, Mm -hmm. again, like if it's my grandma, fine. Right. But if it's just like Joe Schmo, not fine. Yeah. You know, because it's like, well, I don't know like what you're capable of. I don't know what you want from me like, again with a family member it's like well you're probably just looking out for me but i think it's interesting that jeff is so comfortable with it and he's like yeah well if this gives her peace if i remind her of a loved one and mm-hmm. it gives like he's giving her comfort yeah 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 it's kind of interesting mm-hmm, that is yeah i never thought about like the reverse angle as right. opposed to like a spirit looking out for us well now he's looking out for her yeah i don't know just a little different
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah very much so yeah
3: so fun sorry it's okay have a little burp forming in the back of my throat. So it's it's just gonna come out mid sentence. <laughs> I can just feel it. It's the worst. Um
2: and where did where did that take place again? That axe situation?
3: Veliska. Nailed
2: it. I know. I thought I'd get you. No, good job. He,
3: once I saw it again, I was Stunken. like, Oh yeah. 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 But like trying to like pull it from memory. I'm like, what <laughs> how do you spell that? I'm I'm pretty good with words. Yeah. 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 I'm a pro. <laughs> um okay, well I have another story if you if you're into it.
2: I'm actually, I actually I gotta run. I uh
3: <laughs> could you imagine? <laughs> if you, you ask me, up?
2: I sleep, actually um I and then it's not even something like important. It's like I I'm kinda my of, like, blood sugar feels a little off. I was gonna go get some uh no, I just don't want peeps. That's a thing. I would stay for the story if I wanted peeps.
3: <laughs> You're just out of here? Uh-huh. One of these days, I am just going to get up and leave. Aww. Maybe like when you tell a story that has a terrible no-ending ending that makes mm. me crazy or when you show one of your stupid photos that's like, you know. Maybe that's
2: how this series ends someday. <gasps> you just leave. Oh, my God. You're like, nope, I've heard it. That's it. That's I've it. Heard, I've, heard I've heard it all. I've heard too many ghost stories. Oh, my God. Done.
3: That would be really funny. <laughs> that, that would be so great. <laughs> mark it down okay we'll talk about it later <laughs> uh okay yeah so this story uh again like a weird interesting kind of confirmation of definitely knowing what you're seeing mm-hmm. and um yeah I, I just i really like the story and i think it has like a a sweet note at the end okay hello dan and Lindsay. i'm a big fan of scared to death i've currently been binging I've, i currently been binge listening at work since I'm quite a few episodes behind. So much to do, so little time. My story needs a little background before I dive in. I grew up in a super dysfunctional household with some pretty miserable parents. As you've mentioned on the podcast a few times before, negative entities tend to target those in emotional distress. My mother was an alcoholic, and my father was either absent or abusive to her. Not, needless to say, there was a lot of chaos and negativity in the house on a regular basis. The house was built in the 1980s, and my parents were the sole owners of the home. So how did all the spirit activity in the house occur? No one had died there, and no one had ever lived there before. And so, my tale begins. My mother was raised Protestant, but touched into the occult here and there. She played with Ouija boards from time to time, never really diving into all of it that much. However, she believed she was haunted from a young age, and that it had followed her into adulthood. It seemed as though the worse her drinking got, the more the activity sprung up in the house. We would hear running footsteps down the hallway when it was just her and I in the house. I had a big blue marble that sat on my desk that would spin in circles all on its own. And I had an Anne of Green Gables porcelain doll that would move its arms and head all on its own. (sighs) Friends of mine would sleep over at the house and see full-bodied apparitions. The activity never ceased, and there was never a moment of rest. Eventually, I moved out of the house at age 16, which was an emotional breaking point for my mother. She was drinking more than ever, and she was in and out of psych hospitals for suicide attempts. I never really understood it until 2013 when she passed away. I remember the night clearly because she had just gotten home from Fatima Hospital in Rhode Island only a few nights earlier. In the middle of the night, I was woken up by my phone ringing. It was my dad saying that my mom had fallen down the stairs to the basement, hit her head pretty hard, and it didn't look good. At the time, I just rolled my eyes and attempted to go back to sleep as hospitals and institutions had become a regular occurrence. And then another phone call. Dad again. Ignored. I started to close my eyes, but then something caught my gaze. I looked at the end of my bed, and my mom was standing there. She was in her favorite pajamas, with white with pink flowers on them. Just smiling, almost glowing. She looked happier than I'd ever seen her. I sat up, and we just looked at each other for a moment. Then she kissed me on the forehead and was gone. I laid back down and sobbed myself to sleep. The following morning, my dad showed up to the place I was living at the time and told me that my mother had passed away the night before, but I already knew. We gave ourselves a day or two to process the loss and then started planning the funeral. I stayed at my parents' house the night before the funeral, since it was custom to all drive in together. My dad, my brother, my half-sister, and I. Lying in my old bed that I hadn't slept in in a year, I didn't fall asleep easily as all of the familiar sounds kept me awake. That night, I dreamt of something scratching on my bedroom door. Then it was knocking loudly. Then it was slamming its invisible fists into my door. I could hear it screaming over and over and over, I'm going to kill you like I killed your mother. Jesus! I woke up sweaty and screaming for my mom. Fast forward three years. I'm now 20 years old, living on my own as a single mother of a young baby. I was lost in my own addiction, following in my mother's footsteps, unfortunately. One night, I overdosed. Thankfully, my son was at his grandmother's house, and luckily the neighbors found me and called the ambulance. I do not remember falling, but as my body lay in the kitchen, my spirit sat on the couch in the living room, several feet away. On the couch, my mother sat beside me. (laughs) She didn't say anything. She just looked at me as I told her all the wonderful things about my baby boy. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't nervous. It didn't even occur to me that I was speaking to my deceased mother. I felt a type of calm and serenity I had never felt before. My mother beckoned me in the direction of my son's room, which was glowing. I told her that I couldn't go with her and that my son would be home soon. And then I woke up. Three MTs standing over me, telling me that I had been dead for three minutes. Wow. I was lucky to be alive, and off to the hospital I went. I'm now five years clean, and I really think my mother saved my life. Whatever darkness haunted my mother did not die with her, and it somehow followed me into my grief. I wouldn't say I'm religious at all, but I certainly believe in some sort of higher power that has no name for me. If there is darkness in this world, there has to be light, right? And that light is what I reach for pretty regular pretty regularly to keep the darkness at bay the house i live in now was built in the 1920s but there is nothing but love here and not a single haunted spot in the whole house as a side note my father also passed away in 2018 from a heart attack and my son would see him in his room for about eight months after his passing my son was three at the time and was not afraid of his papa being in his room but it did bother him when he slept so he asked his papa to please go home and home he went Thank you for reading my story. Even if it doesn't make it on the show, here we are. (laughs) I just wanted to share this with you. Keep doing what you do, and I'll keep listening. Katie Sullivan.
2: Thanks, Katie.
3: Katie. Katie Patatee.
2: Katie Patate. Katie Patiti. That was a really good story. Like like um obviously very sad in moments and, yeah. and poignant, but like ho, uh I'm I'm glad that it had a happy ending I know. for Katie's sake. Yeah. And her boy. And then uh in that interesting and happy ending in a weird way with her mom. Mm-hmm. where We're like not happy in life, but this apparition showing up in, you know, two different moments very intensely. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh get kind of putting forth nothing but like positive energy in those moments. I, I don't know, that was a I like that story a lot. I know, me too. Creep, creep me out moments. Mm-hmm. And then also just uh, weirdly
3: reassuring. Yeah, it was like very touching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that we've had stories before, I know for sure on my side, of people who are afflicted with some sort of addiction, mm-hmm. but also claim that they're haunted, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you meet people in life and we say, like, yeah, they're just a haunted soul. And we don't mean like possession we just mean like you know they they have stuff they have their demons that they're battling and i often wonder you know like katie's hearing like an actual something like at her door saying that like it killed her mother it's like i wonder how that part was freaky yeah and i wonder how often somebody who's like in deep deep addiction Mm -hmm. i don't mean like a casual there's levels of addiction if i mean someone who's like so in the thick of it it's like you wouldn't believe them if they said that it was mm-hmm. being spawned by some sort of spirit or that they were drinking or using to get away from that, to avoid mm-hmm. that. But it's like, I wonder how often the two could possibly be intertwined. I
2: don't know. That'd be Boy, such a fascinating study. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: You know, because it's like, you know, we all have voices in our head, right? Like we all talk to ourselves in our head.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And there's like that weird thing. Like some people hear their own. But some people actually don't talk to themselves in their head, yeah, which I don't like a understand. Rare thing.
2: Yeah, a thing. Yeah, there's a term for it. Yep. Yeah, yep.
3: Yeah, Jared doesn't.
2: Yeah, right. right, yeah.
3: Our brother-in-law. Um, mm-hmm. but like, Actually, in the- it's not
2: even that rare, too. It's like a fairly decent uh, percentage of people just don't have like a inner monologue voice.
3: Joe, do you have an inner monologue voice? Of course. Okay, good. Just <laughs> Mine's right. terrible. It is?
2: I don't know. No, oh. that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you mean, though, Joe, if you're being serious. Yeah, because mine can be very negative. I'm like, shut up. Mm. Always pushing to be better. Ah, like If, ah. So, if I mess up,
0: that, that that voice is super loud. Mm. And I'm mm. not going to stop till it's right.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, mine is always like, uh, like so much self hate. I'm like, oh, oh, that's nice. Yeah,
2: mine's very critical. Yeah, yeah,
3: and, and mine is critical of me. Like, it's yeah, not, mine too. Mine is, it's never like if you were to fuck up, or like if Joe, if you were to fuck up, or anybody, I wouldn't be like, oh, what a fucking idiot, what a loser, so stupid, so hideous. No, but like, it's like that's how my inner voice talks yeah. to myself. But. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. um, like I do outside of my BetterHelp therapy, I also have an in-person therapist, which is like, listen, we all have to do what we have to do. And I love therapy. So (laughs) I have Mm to. Don't judge me. But my in-person therapist, she does EMDR therapy. And it is a way of creating new neuropathways Uh and changing different synapses in your brain. And so one thing that I've been working on there is that inner monologue. Mm -hmm. And it is fascinating. You can change it.
2: I found a therapy shortcut for that. I know. Go ahead. DMT. Yep.
3: Well, you said I'm not ready for DMD. You're
2: not. Yeah. But yeah, five MEO. That, that's a uh,
3: five MEO.
2: F- five MEO. There's different like oh. uh, forms. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm so angry it's not legal because I want more now.
3: Well, that's concerning, and that's why it's not fucking legal.
2: Well, that's not why it's, it's illegal. But uh, well, it seems I don't like want to do it like all the time. But like, well, the way I wanna, you just wanna have said a, that, I want to have a regular. It's my therapist. I want to have a. I, I'm an adi- my additional therapist is DMT.
3: Oh, boy. You have Debbie and DMT. Mm-hmm. I don't want to
2: do it all the time. I just want to do it every day.
3: It's <laughs> right. not all the time. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Come on. No, I mean, well, I am excited to do shrooms with you. Mm-hmm. And, like, because I had a really emotional experience with uh, Silly Honey, which is just honey laced with psilocybin. So it's, like, very, very yeah. low dose. It was my first sort of step into that world, which, like, I loved drugs yeah. a lot when I was younger, but I was always afraid of...
2: You grown-up drugs.
3: Well, yeah. Now I want grown-up controlled environments. You mm-hmm. know, I don't want to do like acid or cocaine. Uh,
2: I can't wait. If if I had like a good pharma- pharmacist person, I would love to have uh, LSD tabs in a special little place for when I want them.
3: Oh boy, this is what I'm dealing with, folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited.
2: Disassociate.
3: I'm I'm excited to play with the psilocybin yeah. and see kind of what how how that can also change the inner monologue.
2: You do the stems. I'll do the caps. Okay. All right.
3: Great. I already decided how I'm going to take them because I know that they're going to taste like dirt, like gross. I Mm -hmm. hate mushrooms to begin with. Mm -hmm. Do you know what fruit leather is? I don't. Oh, it's just I like, pictured a fruit roll up when you said that. Well, it is, but it's like oh. like a, basically a more it's an all natural version. Generally speaking, oh, OK, there's like the really shitty gross version that I loved growing up as a kid because my mom would never let me have them. And if she mm-hmm. let me, oh, it's like the kind that comes on like a piece of like vellum. It's like a th- mm-hmm. right. So I had and it's like big round and you like sh- yep,
2: your classic fruit roll
3: up. Oh, pull it off. But but not fruit roll up brand. These are the ones that right. like, knock off fruit roll up. sort of they were in the fruit section and fruit, they were like fruit bunched up. They were in the the produce section, and they were, like, longer, and uh, they mm. were just so good. And I know that they were really... My mom said they were... Same very, fruit stuff. My mom said they were very expensive because they were a dollar a piece. Oh. So, but I think that they were not the good ones. Now you can go to Trader Joe's, and it's, like, called the Fruit Leather Company, and huh. it's, like, a really thick version of it. It's just, like, ma- mass... Like, smash, 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 mm-hmm, smash, mm-hmm. mass. Macerated fruit. And then, So, I think if I, like, roll the shrooms up in that and eat it, it'll be okay. Oh, okay. Because it's something, like, sweet, but, mm-hmm. like... Similar consistency. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. All right. We probably should have said, like, have your kids stop listening right now so we can talk about drugs.
2: Nah, kids need to learn about them.
3: I know. I how are they know. ever going
2: to figure out how to do them right if they never learn about them? I,
3: know. I love the conversations in our house about drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of drug talk. <laughs> like, listen, if you're going to do it, like, you're going to let us know where you are, huh? you're going to be safe, da da da. Kyler's never going to do it.
2: Yeah, who knows? He's out. Who he's knows? out.
3: out. So, so he out. says now. Well, I think you he's know. out. Um, do you want to do some Annabelle shout outs?
2: Oh Ooh. yes, actually. Uh-huh. Oh man, you know what? You do yours. Oh I will... dear,
3: Dan forgot to enter his interview. Well, the...
2: today today was a little bit of a shit show. I could go off about it, but the fucking DMV and our son trying to get his license threw oh, yeah. off my whole game today.
3: He like he went. He had an yep. appointment. He did all the research. Oh my god, did all this I hate them so much. And then he went, and we have a certified copy of his birth certificate, which when he got his his driver's permit, not even his mm-hmm. license, he was able to just bring in a copy, like a copy of the copy. They didn't care. Yeah. It was fine. Then Kyler goes back today and he calls and he's like, I need my actual birth certificate. I'm driving Monroe home. Thank God I'm so organized. Because Dan calls. And he's like, huh? where is it? I was like, okay, it's here. You go in, go in here. Da, 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 uh-huh. So we're so excited. Okay, great. We have it. Yeah. He goes over there and it's like, nope. We need the original.
2: Yeah. Like, get the F they, out of here. They would not take a certified copy, which also comes from the state of Washington.
3: I know. It's got the seal and everything has on a, it.
2: Yep. has a seal and everything Thing, and they're like, not good enough because of some stupid fucking law I know. that some ass clown passed anyway. Uh, I,
3: so, I, I, so so Dan didn't enter his. He didn't take a moment because he was just so so wrapped up in that. Yeah. We're trying to get this done at the end of the day.
2: But I have them. I have them right we, here. But
3: you have them because I texted them to you. Yeah, thank yep, God. Exactly. So did you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? I'll go first. Okay, go ahead.
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I would like to thank the Annabelle. Sorry for the uh, little intro there. Uh, Jez. Oh, boy. Oh. Jez Czechoslovakian, last name. Jez Mordrick. M-O-D-R-Z-Y-K. Modric? mod. Yep, maybe the Z is silent. Modric. Joe Sanchez. Nailed it. Chaotic Bob 90. Got that one. Samantha Perro. Nailed it. Gabrielle McCarty. Okay, I'm on fire. Austin Ebbinghausen. Questionable. Lexi McGregor. Antoinette Costa. An- Costa. Okay, fuck that one. Andrew N, Kai Gonzalez, Ashlyn Rose McClelland. Nailed it. Xander Oh boy. Xander Bubblegum. Xander <laughs> Bellingham. Xander Bellagem. Xander Bellgam. Bellingham. Xander Bell. Yeah, ben Green. Tina Malia. Ramen Priest. Okay, that's funny. Christy Kinsler. Madeline Doro. Stephanie Hunt. Steph Stroop. Stroop. Steph Stroop. Echo Hodgin, Tiff Anderson, Sydney Anderson. Oh, Sydney Conjecco. Conjeho. Okay. Okay, Sydney Conje. Kine- well, yeah, no, actually. No? C O N C O N J E C O. Conjeho. You just can leave out that C. Yep. Like it's not even silent. fucking part of there's no silent C's. <laughs> and Sydney Conjecco, like I said. <laughs> and then Kirsty Daly. Oh my god! Maybe it's uh like a Dutch like a K and a J next to each other. K-
3: uh, oh yeah, yeah. I Kirstie. think it's Kirsty. I think it's
2: Kirsty Kirsty Daily, and then Lauren Haney nailed the last one.
3: I think Kirsty because like I think of like uh, Kirsty Alley.
2: If you threw a J in there though,
3: yeah. But mm-hmm. I think it's the same, right. same thing. Okay, well let's see how I listen,
2: do. Listen, listen. I want to propose a new thing. Even though my kids have weird names, new thing going forward.
3: Yeah,
2: we get we pick as a, each country picks fifty names. <laughs> <laughs> right each country votes that's on so dumb votes on the top 50 names oh, boring nope top 50 names oh,
3: boring. And,
2: and everybody agrees on the spelling blomp, blomp, and then that's blomp. all you get to pick from going get forward.
3: out of here <laughs> <laughs> i think that's too many
2: i've oh, always that's is way too many top 10 <laughs> yeah, top 10 maybe? <laughs> top, top five. Oh boy we got five names to pick everybody gets nicknames okay Okay.
0: Uh-huh.
3: Okay. So uh, now I'm going to call out my names, and maybe you can give me like a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You can say like, if I think
2: they sound real. Yeah,
3: you can say like if I nailed it or not. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Amber Howard. Got it. Rory Hoffert. Mm-hmm. Jennifer. No last name. Okay. Uh, Jessica Moat. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I, I also think I might have typed it wrong because I wrote Jess J E S S I C E Jesses. Sometimes I don't. I have to spell Jessie's name. Deceased. But I think it's Jessica Moat. Okay. Anna Kimber. Yes. Stephanie Melendez. Yep. Jacon Bell. No. Do you think it's Jason? Doesn't... It's J-A-C.
2: Mm, okay. Okay. Jacon.
3: <laughs> Dragar. Christine Kroll. Uh-huh. Oh. Kroll. Good one. Kroll Cafe. Immediately. Yep. Catherine Clark. Okay. Chelsea Wilson. Yep. Jacob Butler. Mm-hmm. Tiffany Vo. Yeah. Courtney Martell. Yeah. Adriana Hughes. Mm-hmm. I don't like
2: Andriana Adriana Try Andri-
3: it No it's It's A-N-D-R-E-A-N-N-A
2: She just texted me She changed it <laughs> I just got a text alert She said <laughs> Okay
3: Monkey D. Luffy Nailed it Perfect Kelly G hmm Yahara Salgado Okay yeah Naya Jones Yes Casey Solomon hmm Caitlin Auber Yes Princess Buttercup
2: Whoa nice
3: Rachel Kubli
2: Nope Why You said Kubli wrong how do you know? It's cubly.
3: K-U-B-L-Y? It's
2: pronounced uh, Cudley.
3: Okay. <laughs> Megan Mattis. Yep. Michael Connolly. Yep. Brie Dahl. Mm-hmm. Sam C.
2: Sam C. Sam
3: okay. C. All right. Sam C. <gasps> okay, here we
2: go. Okay, whoa, hold the phone. <laughs> Spoopy shout outs.
3: To Beige from Tyler. Love you. Love spending my life with you. They got married on Halloween, which is very sweet. Oh, that's cool. To Gerardo Gerardo. From Brichelle, love you and happy belated birthday to Allie and Katie from Van, I love you, my favorite little rats. <laughs> <laughs> to Sarah from Martin, Boris will always love you, Natasha.
2: I love my favorite little rats. Uh huh. Mm, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, and that is our show. Uh, thank you for the ratings and reviews lately, Creeps and Peepers. Oh, over ten thousand reviews on Apple Podcasts alone.
3: Woohoo! Keep it up.
2: Yeah. What a great yeah. What a, what a great Christmas present for us. So uh, it helps us find new listeners and is so appreciated. Uh thanks for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scared com. You can email us for everything else at info at dot com. Thanks to Logan Keith, Liz Hernandez for the work on social media. To Logan again for running dot com. Thank you to Joe Paisley for producing and di- Oh Jesus Christ, you scared the shit out of me.
3: Good. Those wow.
2: Were- for producing and directing today.
3: I finally did it.
2: Zach Cohen for Custom Soundbed Creation. I was going to say some extra nice things about Joe and then you threw me off.
3: Yeah, screw it. He doesn't need to hear anything good about himself.
2: Yeah, he does. He- Heather Rylander for organizing uh, the My Story emails. Book editor Drew Atana for helping format the listener stories each week. And thanks to producer Olivia Lee for finding the uh, first story today. Sophie Evans for finding the second. And if uh, you, know, you want to hear uh, more tales... Uh, Bonus episodes every week Merch discount If you want to get a shout out And have us completely Fuck your name up (laughs) You can join us on
3: Patreon Come on, it's so fun It's so fun (laughs) Remember Seven Beavers? Come on
2: Enjoy your nightmares Creeps and peepers Happy holidays And hope you were scared to death Bye If spirits threaten me in this place Fight water by water And fire by fire Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last race. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through, but have no home here within. Scare to death.
1: Bad Magic Productions